I was on 14 prescriptions a day. It was a toxic, toxic mess. And I should not be here right now. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited. Today on the line we have Leslie Moffitt. Leslie is the author of two books. She's a classroom high school band teacher, and she is a public speaker and also... Maybe most importantly, she's a mother. So, Leslie, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Al. I'm delighted to be here. This, it really worked out timing-wise uh, for a really important time to have you on the show, I think, to, to be able to talk education. And I think most listeners probably know that I'm an educator myself. I've been in education for over 20 years. I'm a, an assistant principal at a large urban school district. And in that district, I work at a pre-K through eight uh, school. So uh, I'm excited to have a fellow teacher on and somebody with the same passions and has had the similar challenges to me with mental health. Um, I do want to start just by saying it's, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about the fact that I was having you on the, the show tonight, but uh, I had been looking at some articles because something popped up in my email. And I just wanted to start by sharing some headlines. If people are not aware of this, like there is a real teacher crisis right now happening. And I'm just going to whip through some headlines that I pulled up uh, just from a quick Google search just before you got on the line here. Um, here's a, a title of an article, Teacher Shortage Leaving Students with Uncertified Educators. That was written in September of 2021. Uh, educators ready for the fall, but a teacher shortage looms. That's written by NEA in uh, June of 2021. Here's another one. Pandemic drives new and seasoned teachers from the profession. That's April of 2021. Next one is, uh, I felt like I was being experimented on. One in four teachers are considering quitting after this past year. That was June of 2021. Just I have a couple more here. Uh, an article uh, in uh, 
the Washington Post, why so many teachers are thinking of quitting. And this talks about seven educators on how the pandemic has driven them to finally say enough is enough. Uh, and a couple right here from Minnesota where I'm at, uh, as recent as today, uh, Education Minnesota says more teachers are leaving the profession during this school year than in years past, and it's only November. And then in the Star and Trib, a big paper, Minnesota teachers say the school year is already the most stressful of their careers. So it's, uh, you know, it is a very, very challenging time for educators. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. So Leslie, you are a band teacher, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your role in the high school? Yeah, um, as a high school band director, I spent the first 30 some years of my career, you know, in a, in a pretty big school, we were a real active program. But what that meant for me as a music teacher was being at school at six o'clock in the morning because my first classes started at 630 for that zero hour jazz band. Then I would teach all day. And at the end of the school day, you know how it is with music teachers, you'd help kids practice after school. You do some of those extra things or have extra rehearsals. And then in the evenings, there were um, often band booster meetings, fundraiser meetings, performances, football games, basketball games, all kinds of other events. And so I was working 12 to 14 hours a day. And the paperwork for all of those events, you know, when I wasn't at work, it was it was just a, a nightmare to manage all of that. I had 300 teenagers that I was responsible for teaching every day. And like you said, most importantly, I had three of my own children I was raising as well. And so, um, Anyway, uh, being a band director is an amazing job. In fact, the title of my first book is I Love My Job, but it was killing me. Um, and one of the things that manifested so greatly for like two decades was depression. And there was a lot of pills involved to help with that until I finally got had to find other strategies. Um, so, you know, I just want to I want to ask you a bit more. One thing that has been really surprising to me as I've been in some band programs, not many, mostly at the middle school level, but like band teachers, you have to know about every single instrument, correct? Well, we have to have the kids think we know everything about it. <laughs> In reality is, I'll be honest with you, there's no way we can know all of that. We have to have learned enough that we can teach that, but then also teaching kids, how do you find the right resources? How do you look things up when I can't possibly know all of them things? But yeah, right. it takes a ton of training to do it. I mean, Music education is basically a double major, all of the music piece, and we have to do everything that all the educator, uh, education majors do. So it's pretty hefty. And, and one class would typically have how many students in it? And I know you're still teaching right now, right? I am. I still am teaching. Um, prior to the pandemic, I would have between 50 and 74 kids per class. Wow. You know what? I've never been so happy for social distancing. I have more manageable class sizes now. I max out at 51 now. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> With big, instruments big and class. Yeah. But to me, that feels like nothing compared to what I had been with, you know, packed like sardines in the classroom. And, and that's with you and only you. Do you have paraprofessionals in there supporting you or anybody else? Um, not in most of the classes when we, when I'd have other sections, like I was responsible for example, our zero hour jazz band, we broke into four bands cause we had 80 kids of four four groups of 20 that we'd break them into for that style of music. So I would have three assistants that would come in and run those rehearsals, but all the other classes, it was me and the kids in the room. Wow. Um, and, and I would imagine you had students with the uh, special needs at times so and when and I, there were behavioral challenges. Yes. 
Yes. I did have one class that was 30. It was percussion ensemble, 30 students and 15 students were special needs students or students with special needs, I should say. And the other 15 were gen ed. And in fact, those other 15 were, were kids that went to state and competed at that level. So you want to talk about a variety of levels, all of whom 30 students, you know, with percussion instruments. And so in that class, I did have paraeducators. And I've got to say right now, shout out to all of the paraeducators out there yes. because they are amazing. They they saw the kids in their other classes, and then when they'd see them in music, they could help me help the kids better. So in that instance, I did have paraeducators. Yeah. Um, not enough ever because they're so invaluable. But other than that, um, no, it was, it was uh, in the classroom part. It was me most of the time. Wow. that is. And, and what's the student population, just out of curiosity? Uh, we have like about 2,100 2, at our school, and it's wow. a suburban school. Uh-huh. Um but uh, it's and I live in the community, which is really cool. Uh, my own three children were part of our music program, so f- and my kids are four years apart. So for twelve consecutive years, I was uh, I had my kids in my classes, and 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 the students, my students were my kids as friends. So that community feel was really cool. So that piece was you know being part of a tight knit community like that has been cool. But then it's hard to draw the line between personal and professional life, and and that oh, for sure. that. That kind of led to some of the other anxieties and depression and things. That oh, went absolutely. Like, yeah. Oh, I, I had, gone. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I live, I have a big river between me. I live in the twin cities. So I work in St. Paul public schools and I live in Minneapolis. But even if I go out in Minneapolis to like a target, a big grocery store or something, I'm bound to see somebody I know, family members of kids or kids I know or, um, or other employees. And you're right. Like when I was going through my depression, that was awful. And that was part of the reason I stayed home and isolated, which is awful when I was taking a medical leave rather than going out. I didn't want to be seen by anybody because I had so much shame associated with it that I would stay in and isolate because I didn't want to see somebody and explain what I was doing out at one in the afternoon doing errands. Um, and, and I physically, I just couldn't, um, as well. So I remember that vividly when I, I stopped going to work in the spring of 27, um, 2017, 2018, because, and I couldn't make one more decision. I was curled up in the fetal position in my house yeah. for a long time. My husband had to buffer for three months between yeah. me and the outside world. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? I, I mean, and you just sent me right to a vision I have of myself sitting on a, a chair uh, for my first bout of depression in a fetal position in the dark. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine called me and said, Hey, I'm going to my brother's cabin. Do you want to join me? And he's my very best friend. And I felt like it was a godsend. Like I needed that so badly. And uh, I just, I was not myself with him at all, but it was so comforting to be with a very, very close friend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember even talking to my brother, like, did you tell my friend to call me? Cause my brother was the only one I had really connected with at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the it, it's pretty incredible, and I I also have a blog post out that that talks about spouses and partners need support too, right? Mm-hmm. As you said, um, you were carried for three months of the life, and that happened to me too. My wife did so much while I was going through my depression. So when you know you mentioned a, a long, long teaching career and a long time of dealing with depression, when did your depression start, and when do you? When did you realize it? What were some of the first indicators to you like, wow, something's going on here? Everything was hard. And what was happening was it was manifesting in physical health issues. Everything ached and hurt. Um, 
and it was physical pain and all all of these other things. And I'd go to my doctor and I'd be, and then he finally diagnosed depression. And so that was just another set of pills that I was given. And, um, were there diagnoses prior to that for physical things or were they just oh, yeah. always I mean, like, I've, well, I've had, mystery. I don't know what these no, are. No, Cause I had, I mean, I had lots of physical pain for, uh, uh, congenital um, issues with my skeletal system and all that. I've had major back, neck, hip, and foot surgeries and all this other stuff. So I had a lot of physical issues going on, which were really would get me in a depression state because I would hurt all the time. It's yeah. so hard to function when you're in pain, when when um, that's just a distraction. And so all of those things and then feeling like I could was never caught up at work. You know that feeling. I read your blog. <laughs> you know, yeah. that feeling like, oh my God, where do I even start? There's all the paperwork, all the deadlines, and oh, that one hour planning period wasn't nearly enough time to do anything. So it was just invading every every aspect of my life. Where am I going with this, Al? <laughs> well, well so you were so you were on medications for physical yeah. ailments that were were real physical ailments that yes. you think may have I mean, sometimes it's like the chicken or the egg, right? We know that, that depression can literally cause physical illnesses. Yes. yes. Um, and we also know, especially like chronic type of illnesses and, and going through pain, like you mentioned, can also put somebody into depression. It sounds like you had actual like um, illnesses from childhood dealing with the bones and skeletal and, and those kind of... Um, just kind of moved your depression along as you were living in pain well, and dealing with the stress of work and feeling overwhelmed. And then I didn't have the wherewithal to find another way out until I hit right. such a rock bottom and I watched my friend die. Oh that my was when I went, holy crap, if I don't change something, I'm next. And she told me that. She's like, Leslie, you've got to do something. It's too late for me. I've got stage four. And, and it was like, oh my God. And so um, that's when I, I realized I've got to do something different. And it took a lot to get there. I was in such a depression. My husband had to say, "Let's. would you like to, me to make an appointment for you to go to acupuncture was one of the first things so that we could start addressing some of the physical pain. Then he said, would you like to try a yoga class? And I thought that was a stupid idea, but I tried it because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And I started trying different things that didn't involve pills. Right. And um, well, How that, many pills were you on? And, I was and on were... 14 prescriptions a day from everything that would help me um, from ADHD. I was on the highest dose of Adderall he could prescribe by the time I was there. Um, depression, to depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, inflammation, pain pills. They were writing pain pill prescriptions out the butt for me. It was ridiculous. Um, stuff to help me sleep, things to help me stay awake. Uh, it was a toxic, toxic mess. Yeah, and, and I should was not it be multiple here, right? doctors prescribing yeah. all of well, this? Well, I'd be sent to specialists because the pain was bad yeah. and I'd have surgery. And so my GP would prescribe more you know, pain pills when the other guys would say, oh, you don't need any more. And I'd go back, I'd say, I'm still in pain. He'd write me more prescriptions. He was trying to help. And was but... anybody coordinating all of the, because it sounds like, you know, you have the pain meds coming from one doctor, you have depression meds coming from another doctor and, and, and several different doctors prescribing various meds that but every may time engage I went to those differently. doctors, I had my long lists. Okay. And so they all knew what I was on, which blew right. me away when, now that I look back, I'm like, and they still prescribed them. But I, I got to take ownership. I was so desperate for getting through the next event. I had a trip coming up or concerts. I couldn't miss school. I couldn't. And I couldn't take care of myself. It, I, I didn't know. I didn't have any energy left at the end of the day to eat healthy meals or to, to do any of the things I needed to do to reset my own brain and body. So I was just frazzled and running on the end. And I just felt like there was no end in sight. And I was at the bottom of a hole I couldn't dig out of when I hit that low, low point. And you talked, I mean, but you had 
you talked of years before you even got to that low point. And so we're, those years were just plugging away, pushing through, living with depression without, I mean, and trying yeah. to, trying to, to survive on meds only essentially for multiple yeah. for 20, 30 you years. Know, I live in Seattle and it's, gray here a lot and depression feels like those gray clouds it's like we get sun breaks and i had a lot of great stuff has happened in my life i don't want to sound like it's just all been hell because i've had some um, an amazing life but often events feel overshadowed too because there's just this it feels like those gray clouds that often come in in seattle just that put a damper on everything or it's it's hard to get the enthusiasm going and i didn't i mean i just thought that was how life was supposed to be for a long time Right. Um, medication helped that until some, then I'd need to up the doses and, and it, it was hard. I had to have other coping skills was what I needed. I needed more tools than just pills. How many uh, different medications were you on specifically for your mental health of ADHD, anxiety, depression? Uh, well, I had spe- three, those three specifically, I went through different kinds for, you know, we had tried different yeah. combinations of things for depression and then, uh, Adderall was the big one that I, but they had tried different amphetamine cells, different kinds. So but those were the three for the mental health. Um, so that, you had like had, one for, did, was it one medication one, for your depression I and anxiety? I've and, been off them for like four years now, so I have to think way back. That's but awesome. I think there was a combination that I had to take two, I think, to work together for depression, if yeah. I recall correctly. And then one was for ADHD, um, and then one was for the anxiety. And then I had all my other stuff on the side. Yeah, and were you aware of what each medicine was for. I mean, I have met people who were on multiple meds and sometimes they were like, I don't even know what half of them are for. I would know when I'd start because I would go into my doctor with a specific complaint like yeah. this hurts and I have a concert so I don't have time for physical therapy. Right. There's some pills. So I did know what they were for. And those were uh, heavy duty like oh my oxycodone God. type uh, of things? Oxy and, and Percocet. I was oh, getting, wow. yeah, I, yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I felt like my brain was jello. And I think it led a lot of that, you know, just led to this leth- lethargy and brain fog. Um, and yeah. the combination, I still think, was pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, it just must have been. And, and you were also on sleep meds you talked about, right? So mm-hmm. were you able to manage the sleep? Heavy duty trazodone. I mean, okay. I was taking trazodone and melatonin at night. Yeah. And then, of course, luckily the ADHD meds would counteract that in the morning. You get that and it would help me wake up. But until it kicked in, I felt like I was in a coma. Because yeah. a, like a hangover almost feel from from those medications that helped me sleep. Yeah. I, you hear about that a lot. And actually, mm-hmm. I had a – I don't want to dissuade people from uh, sleep medicine. And I think it's really important to work with your doctor, your, yes. yeah. your doctor, your psychiatrist, somebody around the meds. But I was definitely over-medicated when I was uh, in depression over-medicated for sleep and I didn't even know it because for three weeks while I was in a partial hospitalization program my wife let me just sleep through the night and once I was done with that three-week program she was like oh no no you can get up for the crying twin babies you can get up when you know whatever and I woke up uh in the middle of the night because one of my kids was sleepwalking essentially went downstairs and our motion sensor went off and the alarm was about to go off so there's a high-pitched beeping before the alarm goes I ran I jumped out of bed and ran down to the to turn off the alarm and I got to the alarm panel and I fainted um and I I got up walked about three feet fainted a second time got up walked back up the stairs banging along the sides of the walls and fainted a third time slamming through my bedroom door that was cracked open 
and I had laid down on top. I crawled up onto the bed and laid down, and uh, my wife said I was white, and I got up in the morning and went to work. Called the partial hospitalization program who had given me the meds, and I said, hey, I think I'm, I might. these meds are doing something. And they said, no, you're fine because you've been on them for three weeks. Uh, and they said, but do call an emergency, you know, an ambulance <laughs> if it happens again. And two nights later, it happened again. Oh, no. My wife asked me to take care of the crying babies. I was standing between the cribs and uh, turned to walk out and, and fell flat on my nose. And, uh, and when I went to the ER, the doctor said, fainting is the most common side effect they see from trazodone. So, again, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from trazodone at all. But definitely know how much meds you're taking, yeah. what you need, and and don't take more than than. But I was on a I was on trazodone and a prescription antihistamine, which they thought would knock me out and put me to sleep, and then the trazodone would keep me to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated them realizing that I really needed to get a handle on sleep, but I definitely was over medicated and have an injured shoulder now. From, oh my goodness. Um, but so medicine, so you were on the meds, you knew what they were for strictly for the pain, the physical health, the mental health. Tell us about when you reached 2017 and I know you were questioning if it was 2018 or 17 in your writing. It was spring of 2017. Okay. It's all a blur these days. Yes. I know, <laughs> yeah, I, oh, I I know how that day. is. I can picture the event. I, it was April. I could tell you. Uh, so yeah. So tell us okay. about that. Um, well, I had. Actually, it was in that spring, and, and things seemed to be going really well. I had a big spring trip planned and everything with my students. Um, but I just wasn't feeling good. It was in my gut, and I was still super feeling really down. And, and just What do you through. mean when you say it was in your gut? Because that's interesting. Like, that's actually where I feel. Stomach, where I could not eat, much like you've gone through. Wasn't yeah. able to eat or hold things down, and constant nausea, which was anxiety. Yeah. Um, a lot of that comes back to, but I couldn't settle it down. I couldn't process food. I couldn't. Yeah, that was all icky. Um, and I started really uh, getting a lot of inflammation, like swelling up a lot. And then I, uh, my body In different was just, areas of your body? Yeah, I mean, I literally was like swelling. I went into the ER a couple of times because I'm like, I'm putting on all this weight, but I'm not really eating. They're like, well, you must be eating something. I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, and then it was, yeah, lots of inflammation. And uh, But anyway, I, I, and then my gut, we couldn't figure out what was going on. I couldn't hold food down. Um, they were doing going in both ends with all these machines and doing all this testing. And that's when, um, and I just mentally, I was like, I, nobody could give me answers. And, and then even to do the tests, some of the tests, they're like, you have to eat these scrambled eggs and toast so we can watch. It's got dye in it and we can watch it go through you. And I was in the hospital crying saying, I can't even get this food down. My yeah. stomach. I mean, so that's what I mean by the gut. My right. it, it, the anxiety and nervousness that I was feeling about trying to do all of this stuff. It just felt like the tsunami was coming at me and I was drowning. And my body's reaction was like, stop eating, stop doing things. Because the only time I wasn't at school as it, ever in my teaching career is if I was legit super sick. Right. And I was, and I would have to wear myself out. So it was sort of like, that's when I would get the break. And so uh, it, I had to, I guess I wouldn't let myself take a break until it got that bad. And that's when I ended up super, super uh, mentally and physically bad back in that April time frame. And I uh, called my principal. I said, I can't come to work. I was physically going through all of these uh, hospital tests and all of this. So for the first week or so, it was about that. And we couldn't get answers. And I couldn't, still couldn't eat, was still getting sicker and um, more depressed. And so that's when I, I kind of isolated myself from the world for those couple of months, um, except for my friend Lori, who was uh, the one that I had talked about that had been yeah. had 
Um, and she's about the only person that I would communicate outside of family. Um, and so, so did this, I mean, I know you talked about it like being a week of, of pain and stuff and the doctors knew about your depression and did they ever draw the connection of like, maybe what? this is all related to No. And that's where I finally just said, well, screw this. I have to do something different because I was starting to think I, when my husband said, why didn't you see an acupuncturist? I thought that was dumb. What would that have to do with my stomach feeling sick and everything? But when he started to explain, he, I, I said, I can't eat. And I kept telling him that. And then he started sticking needles in my forehead, and my arm. And I'm like, he's not paying attention, right? My <laughs> stomach's the problem. And then I said, well, can you explain this? I said, I'm feeling something weird, like some this like electricity going through my body. He said, all of this is connected your mental health and your physical health. And he started to explain things to me that opened up a whole new world to me. And that to me, it was like, then I started to think, isn't this all connected? And he was the one that helped me make that connection. And so instead of, I went, I went back to my regular doctor one more time to, for something else. I don't remember what it was. And he handed me another prescription. I said, thank you. I walked out. I put the prescription in my purse and I never filled it. And I went back to the acupuncturist and then I said, what else should I do? And so he suggested a naturopath. So I found a naturopath and then I found somebody to help me figure out how can I eat differently? What did the naturopath, what was that piece about? um, It was again, figuring out, um, she started to make the connection between the gut the third brain, you know, the other yeah. brain and all of that and the connection between mental health and physical health helped me understand how what I ate impacts my body chemistry, which also impacts my mental health right. um, and my and all of these other things. That was eye opening. Yeah. My doctor had put me on pills. He kept saying, you've got to take these forever. This is for uh, anti-inflammatory. You've got to take them. And I was like, OK, I didn't know that it's inflammation. I mean, this is pretty naive of me. I should admit this, but I didn't understand that inflammation is what leads to chronic illness and then long-term disease and, and, uh, diabetes that can lead to, it can lead to Alzheimer's and all of those things. So once I understood the, the, it was the naturopath that explained the impact of inflammation. I was like, holy cow, well, instead of taking people, pills for inflammation, why don't I get rid of the inflammation? Yeah, right, <laughs> that seemed right. like a better alternative. Um, I need and, to help with that though. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who, who draw a connection to depression being inflammation of the brain yes, and yes. essentially an infection in the brain. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really very that, interesting. So you natu- saw the naturopath, you saw a nutritionist, it sounds like. Yep. I went to a counselor to help me understand how I could do my job in ways so I could still be effective and efficient, but not burn out. I can't serve my students when I'm not at school, when I'm too sick to go to work. So I had to be healthy if I was going to be a good teacher too. Um, so I had to employ or, uh, hire people who could help me, somebody who could help me lay down. Um, I got the homework from a counselor who said, you need to write a, a syllabus, um, cover, page to it that talks about when parents can and can't contact you and when you'll respond. Cause I used to just let them, here's my personal number. People would stop yeah. by my house. With, I mean, it got really out of hand. So that's all, all about creating boundaries. Yes. Right? And which I needed so to important. do, which helped with my depression because I feel I, you know, I want to be a people pleaser. What if I'm letting people yes. down and I would sit there and ruminate over, Oh, what if I don't answer emails right away? People will hate me and the world will fall apart. I'm yeah. not that important is what I learned, right? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, what? isn't it? Yeah, I mean, revolve around you. Yeah, I took uh, you know, 5 weeks off of work as an assistant principal and guess what? The building was still standing and everybody was doing just fine without me. And when you You're got right. back, were you not more 
uh, ready and able to cope with Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and luckily I had an awesome boss who also was like, how do we ease you back in? You know, let me know if you need anything off your plate and mm. I'm very understanding. You know, I teach music and I often use the, um, people say self-care and they roll their eyes. We don't have time for self-care. And so I use the music analogy because I work with music teachers so much. And I, I talk about if we were preparing for a concert and a student played a, a, a trumpet and one of their valves got broken, we wouldn't say we'll fix it later. Right. We would say we know, we know we need to fix that or you can't, it won't play at the concert. Or if you try to play it at the concert, it's going to sound crappy and it's going to impact everybody else. You know, you're, you impact other people when you're not functioning at your best. We would understand that that's urgent. We need to fix it. But when it comes to our own health, we'll put it on the back burner. We'll, I'll get to it later. Yeah. I can handle it later, but then it just gets worse and worse. It doesn't go away. The trumpet valve doesn't fix itself. Right, our mental health. Right. Our fi- if you broke your leg, you wouldn't say, gosh, I'll get to that later. Right. Yeah. And so I remember, we, yeah, I, re- I remember having a dilemma of, do I take time off of work and have to deal with people asking me what's going on and what I'm doing or, or do I, and, and go and get myself some help or do I just plug through this because taking off work in itself could be stressful. And, and I worked with a social, uh, oh my gosh, a social worker who has an organization who works with men with depression and anxiety where I still go to support groups. And he said the exact same thing as, as you were alluding to, do you want to take work off and get healthy so you can come back healthy and do your job well? Or do you want to just stay at work and, and be miserable and, you know, isolate in your office and whatnot, whatever I was doing to survive. And it, it was absolutely needed. And it was, you know, my depression wasn't fixed in the five weeks and three weeks of a partial hospitalization program, but it was certainly a, a huge learning piece for me about how to get healthy. And it was a great kickstart to my recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as educators, too, we model for our students so much. And when we're pushing ourselves and we're running ragged, they see that. We overbook ourselves and we overbook them. They see that. And so I think modeling it and I, what you're doing is so fab- fabulous and talking about it. And I think talking to other teachers, other people, our students at school about what mental health is and what when things don't feel right, how we get help for that. We have a whole generation this is not a newsflash that has been traumatized um, yes. our, our students here we've experienced trauma as teachers as administrators as a world and now somehow we are supposed to be in there nurturing these kids and so that's an that makes it hard for us to take care of our own mental health too a lot of us are pretty empathetic and we come we carry that energy home with us and stuff and so having some strategies for how do you you know how do you let it go at the end of the day so that you can be fully present with your own family yeah, right. And yeah. your own self and enjoy those moments because that's important, too. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you going to multiple different doctors around different facets of your personal health uh, was incredible and much needed for you. Did you just kind of piece them all together on your own to be like, OK, I'm going to go to the acupuncturist. I'm going to talk to the nutritionist. I'm going to do. So there was not one kind of comprehensive plan handed to you, it sounds like, but you sought out different resources and implemented them all and pieced them together almost in your own kind of comprehensive way. Yes. And it was freaking hard. And that is why I wrote my first (laughs) book because I did, I didn't know where to start. And when I finally did part of it is to assess where you even are to know where to start. So that's my, one of the first things I do is I have a a mojo meter for teachers to start figuring out where are your biggest struggles right now kind of thing. So, and then whatever you score on there sort of lets you know, where do you, what's, what's your 
best first step because what you might need is different than what somebody else needs, just like our students in class, differentiated learning, right? So my book is, books are made to, to bypass the crap I had to go through and go to a million different places without having that guidance is to help people because you might have to ask lots of other, for other piece, bits of help and other resources, but how do you figure out what to do? You know, um, it's hard out there. And so I was just trying to make it easier yeah. for people to navigate all that. And would you say your plan uh, becomes individualized? Because I, I have found that like, while everybody knows exercise is good for you, different people have a different go-to that really helps support them. So for example, maybe somebody really needs the, the hobby of playing the guitar in the evening because that's their kind of release and that's their, their self-care where somebody mm -hmm. else may go to exercise. Personally, I always talk about it being a multi-pronged approach and you need to, to do many things like make sure you're socializing, exercising, eating right, um, getting fresh air. And so there are multiple pieces, but does your t book talk about kind of differentiating or is it well, really a kind of a hundred percent differentiating? And maybe it's yeah. because as a music teacher, I've got 50 to 75 kids in the room with me and I've got to differentiate for them. The clarinet player needs something different than the trumpet player yes. who needs, and they're all at different levels and there are different things to overcome. Humans are like that too. So sure. that's what this book is like. It'll ask different questions and I'll use, um, I, I have a four pronged method. I call it my M power method because all of the pieces of it start with the letter M and I analyze the big four things that really impacted my ability to make a change. And it was, um, the meals I eat, the movement I make. Okay. That's diet and exercise, but meals and movement. Yeah. And then um, music, using music, whether it's therapeutic to play it as an instrumentalist, to play in an ensemble with other people, to play it alone, to make playlists to help me yeah. uh, get in certain moods, to go to live performances. So music in some way, and then mindful, a mindful approach to what you do. And that is being aware of here's something I'm doing and here's the what happens when I do it. Is this good for me or not? And that, that awareness is huge. And so if we were to differentiate, let's all use meals as, as an example. In there, I talk about different ways you might be feeling and things that might be easy and hard. For example, like if you have brain fog or is making decisions easy and you answer these different questions. And then I show in there what I found food wise for me. For example, for me, eliminating gluten, processed foods and sugars was like a miracle. Made my It took the inflammation away. I'm off all the pills I was ever on by the wow. way, and I'm handling all of this now through food, meditation, medication, uh, not medication, um, through all of these other ways. doesn't mean I'm not still depressed or I don't still have anxiety. It just means I have tools so that I can cope with them better. Yeah. But anyway, so, so for me, I found certain foods that help my body work. Well, for my youngest daughter, she has some different struggles and she found that going vegan has helped her body deal with the, and mind deal with her challenges. The two of us, even though we're, you know, very similar cuz she, you know, she's my flesh and blood, our dietary needs are different. So it I can't say everybody should have this kind of diet cuz that's just like saying, "Oh, you play trumpet, let me give you a reed." Well, right. I don't need a reed on a trumpet. I need a mouthpiece that's different. So that's the that's what I, I really take great pride in helping people find what's right for them, not this yeah. one size fits all because it doesn't that's really awesome. fit all. <laughs> where does the uh, where does the A of acupuncture fit in? Do you, does acupuncture fit into one of those four quadrants? That would be mindful. I found okay. I, the my I found when I went to acupuncture, things happened. I felt differently afterwards, and it it allowed my body to feel different. It allows, uh, you know, it just had some different things. So that's a, my, I was mindful of 
does this help? I did some right. other things that weren't helpful. So yeah. I eliminated, oh, the other, one of the other things I did that was super helpful when I was struggling with not being able to eat, I went to uh, neurofeedback or biofeedback, it's yeah. often called, where yeah. um, it was fascinating as a musician, where they put the sensors on my head and then my own brain waves made music. It wow. was, it's called brain paint and it turns your own um, electrical st- st- uh, st- stuff coming out of your head, all of a sudden I can't find the word, but the electrical, <laughs> you know, the the yeah. energy, electrical energy from your head and, and it uh, plays the most beautiful music. And it became, wow. it was uh, through that, uh, the, the guy I saw for that, it was fascinating. It was like nine or 10 sessions I did with him. And it was like listening to an orchestra play. And it was depending on, um, it was, it was fascinating. It works on the subconscious and unconscious mind. And it was incredible. It has, again, to do with the sound and brave uh, wavelengths and um, uh, vibration, yeah. which is all as a music teacher, I'm fascinated with. So using, awesome. using music in a, my own brain waves, that music from that as therapy was fascinating to me and it was very helpful. Yeah. And because, with, with the mindful piece, are you also, you're talking about also being mindful of living in the moment? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, and I know that they, they really, they talk about the importance of living in the moment, um, because, well, one of the reasons that I have re- read about is that our, we do so much mind wandering and that like 80% or so of our mind wandering is negative thoughts or things yes. that we have to do or things we're worried about coming up or things we did in the past that were bad. And to focus and, and just keep your mind on the moment is so much healthier. What happens physiologically when we think those thoughts that have us depressed or anxious, our body chemistry starts to produce the hormones as if we are in that state. Right. And so we are want to lose weight. You can't when your body's shooting out stuff that doesn't allow you to metabolize your food. Even if you're eating the right foods, you've got to get the basic, you know, your body to, to be able to be calm. I mean that for me having time, I, I haven't used an alarm clock in years. I get up by 4.15 every day so that I can have time before anything else can interfere with my thoughts where I get to decide where my head goes first. No Facebook, no nothing electronic. Nobody else is up to bother me at that hour. Um, And it's my time. That allows me to be in the moment, to think through my day and to have some intention. And that makes all the difference in the world. Well, with mindfulness, I mean, I even notice if I'm playing uh, a game with my kids, like my mind will wander unless I really put an effort into pulling my thoughts back to the game and enjoying being with my kids and mm-hmm. that enjoying that game and that moment and of time. But it is amazing how much mind wandering we do, how thoughts just come into our heads without any kind of conscious awareness of bringing those thoughts to your head, you know, and I then know. they hijack your thoughts. Don't yes. They? Yeah. And what do you and think I, happens to our students in their classroom? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's I, why book three is all about that is teaching because I take this into the classroom and which how isn't do we even help published our students? yet? Right. Right. No, it has not. Yeah. Been finished, let's be honest. Okay. I'm still. Book. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all about that and it's, it's, uh, called pay attention and it's teaching the skill of, of this focus. And I've been doing it in my classroom since I went back after that breakdown I had. Once I went back in the classroom, I took this from a physiological stand and a musical point of view about vibration and all of this and about how when we work in groups, we need to be focused together. And we talked about these kids come into our classrooms from, you know, they get up in the mornings, maybe have stuff going on at home, lots of busyness, getting on buses or in the traffic or walking to school in the rain. They 
they get there, they go to in the hallways. By the time they get to our classroom and we're supposed to teach bell to bell, it's like cramming more crap in their already busy brains. And so what I've started doing years ago, and it's magical, is teaching my students. We spend four minutes a day and I teach them how to relax and calm down and focus and how to get all those thoughts to settle down. Sort of yeah. like a snow globe that's shaken up. Those kids are like, all the thoughts in their heads are like the glitter. And we just take four minutes every day in my classes, every period, where we just, it's like setting down the snow globe. We allow the energy yeah. in their brains as a collective and as individuals. It's freaking remarkable. We yeah, all that's awesome. That. We, we all uh, At the last school I was at, we brought in um, coaches, actually, from a yoga organization that taught something they called mindful movement, but it was mm -hmm. it's also kind of known as yoga calm. And it was the exact same thing. And they used the snow globe to describe the kids' brains and how our mm -hmm. brains often are with everything going on in them and setting that globe down and being able to, to take some movements and breathing to calm your body and, and get prepared to learn. Yeah, it was amazing stuff. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that helps with their, the kids' mental health. And I'll tell you, I know my kids, I have kids on depression and anxiety meds and I, you know, just so many of them dealing with this. And so, and that's another tool that we've got is this helping them self-regulate through the breath. I mean, we're biologically programmed to do that when we do the slow breath, to be able to reduce our heart rates, to reduce our blood pressures. There's a whole bunch. We use biometrics in the class. I'll have the kids take their heart rate and then I'll do the breath work with them and then they'll take it again. And by a show of thumbs up or down, always 99 and three quarters percent of the time, the heart rates have come down, which also means so is their uh, anxiety and all those other things. Yeah. And it makes teaching so much easier. Oh. Yeah. It's amazing that we, like you said, can control our, our heart rate, our blood mm -hmm. pressure, our pulse and everything. And from yeah. The and then it controls the, the, the hormones that are being shot out, which makes it so that we aren't in stress mode once we do that. And then we can learn easier. It's like that barrier has come down. We're not distracted. Right. It's right. so much easier, but that's awesome. Yeah. I'm getting off, maybe a little off your topic, but those are you talking about some tools we use and different mm -hmm. things, strategies. Um, this is our topic and you're not off topic at all. I would say Leslie. And I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> bad mouth medicine. And I know there are people um, and absolute reasons that we need to use medications for anxiety and depression and all that. And that's, and knowing when to do that is as important as knowing when not to do it. So for sure, um, for I don't sure. want to ever give the impression. And I say, I want to just make sure I verbalize that. So nobody says, well, I'm just going to quit my meds and, and breathe for four minutes and I'll be fine. Cause that's a bad idea. Never stop yeah. meds without, I did all of this with a, with my doctors writing down all of the, you know, how do we reduce the dosage safely? All of that yeah. was done under medical supervision. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that too. And I, I, uh, was on and still am on one antidepressant. And I, a psychologist, a psychologist of mine has actually said, you know, we should get you off that medicine. And I'm a little nervous too, but I'm thinking about it. But like you said, I would not do that without the guidance of a doctor because so many of the meds are, it's really important to wean off properly, or you can go through some serious, serious withdrawal and have other impacts that are negative. And and I agree with you, too. And just so you know, uh, as somebody who is taking a medicine, I didn't take any offense to how you described your, you, you know, if you can get off the meds, I think anybody would be, that's great, right? Yeah, that's I just, a great the side goal. effects, the side effects became too much for yeah. me to handle. So, but yeah. It, yeah, like I said, it was, a, it was a lot of work to do that. Um, but I'm really grateful that I had the meds when I needed them. Yeah, Because absolutely. I would have, I, I don't know where I would have been if I didn't have the coping skills otherwise. So can you, uh... 
Can you walk a, the the work you're doing? It's amazing, and you've turned around your life so much, and and you lost a ton of weight throughout. It sounds like as well. Well, once I learned, yeah, some skills, it's that was effortless because I was yeah. like, wait, when I eat things that my body can process, it processes right. them differently, and then I feel better, and it doesn't hold on to stuff. There's no inflammation, and stuff doesn't hurt anymore. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I feel I feel better in my. I'm 56 years old, and I feel better than I did in my 20s and 30s. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm That's doing it. It's just crazy cool. So so you have two books that you have published. Congratulations, mm-hmm. by the way. Thank you. And you have a third one on the way, it sounds like. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can give us the title of the books again and just like a brief synopsis. I'm, I'm thinking the books are, at least one of them, are probably a lot about what we've talked about. But if you could share the titles and, and a little bit about each of the books. Yeah, in a nutshell, book one is called I Love My Job, But It's Killing Me. And it's the teacher's guide to conquering chronic stress and sickness. And um, and again, that's the one we've pretty much have talked about. It's helping you assess and analyze and then address the things that are, are making it hard for you to do this job. Um, so it's And then the second book is called Love the Job, Lose the Stress, Successful Social and Emotional Learning in the Modern Music Classroom. And it's about... Uh, how do you create an environment for your students and you that addresses yours and their social and emotional needs so that that's and literally so that you can create a space where the mental health of all of you is in a good space and it makes teaching easier. So the first book is how to get your own shit together. The second one is how to help your students kind of in the classroom atmosphere. And the third book is called pay attention where I really dig in to teach, um, how to teach this skill of helping students relax and then be able to focus and pay attention because I've seen the drastic change it has made in my students' lives and in my life as a teacher. And I've got uh, so much feedback from from students and about how how this is not just in our classroom helped them, but the tool, you know, they'll talk about when they're in an athletic situation or before tests, they use this to calm down. When they're driving and they get nervous, they know how to take some breaths instead of panicking. Right. Um, and so... They're learning this self-regulation. Doesn't mean they'll never need other help. I get that. But, you know, kids self-medicate a lot of times with other things. And oh, what if, yeah. What and if they could take a breath and they could learn and they got this fast result because we practice it every day, just like they practice complicated musical stuff yeah. and master it. I'm teaching them to master their breath work and they do it and they love the feeling. Yeah. They feel calm. They sound better. Rehearsal's easier. The kid that is really stressed out and high strung and has a hard time focusing feels better. And the kid that already is focused feels better because the other kids aren't being distracting and everybody's better. So I just get so excited when I think about how it's changed my classroom and all these other teachers that have been using it when I've uh, taught it and they, they send me stuff and they tell me about their classrooms and I'm like, Oh my God, this is it. This is so helpful. Mental health. We didn't address this when I was in school. Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. One thing you said about the book titled love the job, lose the stress um, one thing you said that I really, it really resonated with me, particularly as an administrator too, is that not only is it helping the kids, but it's helping you. And I'm sure when you are introducing your breathing in the beginning of your class, that's wonderful help for you as well as all of the students. I am students. the most chill teacher on the planet. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, right. every, I, first of all, in the morning I get up and I do that, right? But then every hour that I teach, yeah. I do that with my students. So no matter what happened the period before, what email I got or whatever, I get to reset and be present with them. And that was, I told them when I started teaching this the first time, I said, I get distracted and I've gone off my meds for ADHD with my doctor's help. And so I still get distracted. And with all of you coming in with all your instruments, it's so hard. So can, 
can you help me reset? That's how I kind of introduced it yeah. was to help. And they were great. But I have to tell you, I love the job, lose the stress. I was so proud of this. I was going to retire in June of 2020. So I started this book in uh, January of 2020, finished the manuscript on March 3rd. You know what happened wow. 10 days later? That's what when happened? we shut all the schools down. Oh, right. And I'm right. like, holy mother of God, I just named a book, Love the Job, Lose the Stress for Teachers. And now we're in this weird pandemic. <laughs> I called the publisher. I'm like, can I please change the title? That's the stupidest title for a book for teachers because there's no such thing. And they're like, no, you can't change it now. So I was panicking that, oh, my God, it's just awful because you don't lose the stress. There's no way. That's a dumb title. But you learn how to cope with it and how to not let it take you down. Yeah. And how I to think ask for help when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, ta- the the title is still perfectly fitting. You know, I do want to ask you this question because this is something I hear that I think teachers are saying a lot. So, of course, even well before the pandemic, I have been advocating for, for more mental health support or systems of support for educators because I think we as districts and, and states even can help support educators by creating systems that allow for more mental health support. But one thing, you know, with the pandemic, especially more and more people are saying, don't forget about self-care. It's super important to to, um, to take care of yourself so we can take care of others. Like you mentioned with your with the example of like a trumpet key. And if it's if it's broken, you need to fix it right away. But I do often get hear teachers say not directly to me referring to me talking about how important their self-care is because I think they one they know that I'm very sincere about it and I've been talking about it for a long time Mm -hmm. but I do know that a lot of educators are saying and feeling like enough with telling me to take care of myself you know do something for me and I'm wondering if you hear that sentiment from educators and and what you your thoughts are on that Yes, our jobs are ridiculous. There's too yeah. much on our place. And I can't change that part. Right. What I did, what I did personally, and I share in my book is in order for me to, to go from, I love my job, but it's killing me to be able to say, love the job, lose the stress. I had to let some things go. Some things included taking a, going to a point eight instead of a full-time contract. Yeah. Because I realized that if I kept teaching full-time, I would not keep be able to keep teaching longer term. Yeah. But when I cut back to point eight and I cut out the groups, I took out two groups that um, got a lot of accolades, the jazz program and the drumline group, where we were always out in public. We got, it, it fed my ego. It was fantastic to do all that. But it was also where a big ton of my energy and time went. And so I had to make that hard decision. It's not like yeah. I just stayed in the same job and kept doing the same things. I had to make some hard choices. That was a hard choice to make when our third child was – in her um, junior year of out of state college still. And our oldest had just gotten married. And of course we had to pay for that. They're all, all my kids are girls. So that's happened. I had, we still have a mortgage. And, and so going, you know, a big pay cut was terrifying, but not as scary as what I saw happen to my friend. She died. I would have been going down that same path if I stayed full time and tried to do it. I, it was not sustainable. So I can't fix the broken system. I can talk yeah. about how there's problems and the like, but sometimes we have to we have to make choices if we're going to stay in the system. And if enough of us do it and the system starts to say, hey, wait, we have to hire more people then. Yes, you do. Yeah. Because that wasn't a one-person job. Right. Now, that's a really good point. The, you know, like, yes, the districts, the schools need to look at how we can support our educators. And in the meantime, while they aren't, 
necessarily able to support us enough, we do need to take care of ourselves. And like you said, you went point eight. I heard you earlier in this interview talk about creating boundaries that you needed to set. That was another big change you did around work that I know must have helped you immensely. And we have to look at those pieces. And that's something that I did as well. I, I was a principal for two years and I never saw my family and it was impacting me negatively. And I didn't know about, you know, money and taking a pay cut with four little kids. Mm. Um, but my wife was supportive and, and I just said, you know, I don't know what it's going to mean financially, but I need to do this. And luckily I had a spouse who was supportive and, and that was a really tough decision for me, but it was one I had to make and it, it allowed me it took off an, an incredible amount of stress, um, and and we did just fine financially still. Sounds like we won the lottery with spouses, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because doing this on our own would have, or with a spouse that couldn't be the support, I don't know where I'd be if my husband hadn't yeah, been. Yeah, right. I'm and just that so lucky. Is, and that is really another piece, right? Like to seek out those who are supportive, right? Because I'll see people online and stuff who are like, you know, I don't have somebody to reach out to, but you, you need to find somebody. If you don't have a spouse or a partner, you know, go find a doctor, tr a trusted colleague, a distant relative, you know, somebody who can help support you, even just minimally. I know they can't do the type of support that our spouses right. clearly did for us. Um, and, and to ask for that help too, right? You know, it's that's okay so hard for those of for us that help. are leaders, right? We're supposed to help others as teachers sure. or administrators. And it's like, we're the problem solvers. And, yeah. but then when we're drowning, we need the lifeboat. And I think that's part of the shame I had too, you mm -hmm. know, like I shouldn't be in this situation and what's the matter with me? To, I kept thinking yeah, <laughs> everybody exactly. else is doing fine. Just me. Well, this is this is incredible stuff. So you do public speaking around the topic, professional development. You have your books. How do people find your books and find out more about you? My website is m the letter m powerededucator.com. So everything's there. My books are in. You can get them online in bookstores or um, through my website. Um, and if you want to, you know, for speaking, it's through APB speakers, but there's a link for that on my website. It's all in that spot. There's lots of free resources for teachers that want to look at things. I can share samples of the books and stuff for people that want to kind of get started. Awesome. Lots of so stuff. M, like the letter M, mpowerededucator.com. I'll make sure to put that in the notes for the show as well. Great. Thank you. Yeah. That's just some incredible, incredible work you're doing. And it is so needed right now. So I feel really lucky to have found you and your work and to have had you on the show. You know, the last question I'll ask you is a question I try to ask every show, every guest. If somebody out there is struggling right now who's listening, what's the, the biggest piece of advice you would give um, to somebody sitting at home struggling right now? Probably to talk to somebody. Reaching out, because um, I think the isolation is pretty scary. Yeah. And so if you're struggling, talk to somebody, find somebody that can is either walked the walk or um, that can hold space for you to, to talk and to help you find what you need. Because um, we're part of human nature is we need one another. Yeah. Um, and what you're doing is you're giving permission to, for men to talk about mental health. I think we women are have been doing it because we talk about everything right um but it's <laughs> you men have to be brave and masculine and tough and all of this and our society has made these stupid you know rules or whatever about that and so what you're doing talking about it and and letting people know they're not alone i thought i was alone 
Yeah. I wrote my books because I couldn't find what I needed. So please, if you're out there struggling, even if it's me you reach out to, I answer my own email. Um, find somebody that can help you find the resources you need because um, mental health is is key to everything. It, it impacts your physical health and your ability to function in this world. Yeah. That's awesome and a great piece of advice. And the only thing I would add, only because it happened to me, is if you reach out and you don't get the help you need from somebody, which would be an awful situation, but it does happen, reach out to somebody else. Yeah. Don't give up reaching out. Um, if it has to be a clergy member, a doctor, a neighbor, somebody. And, and, and I would add to that, if someone doesn't respond, don't take it personally. Because that could be, you, sure. know, you think, oh my God, they don't care. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe they're busy or maybe no. they didn't have their phone. So, yeah. And, and some people just don't know how to respond to something right. like that. Yeah. Like, so, oh, my God, you're depressed. I don't know what to yeah. say or do. I might make it worse. Yeah. So, so, yeah, reaching out to someone else then or crisis hotline if you need to be anonymous and uh, whatever you know you need, Google, find, find something. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, support from others. Even if they can't give advice, just people who can hold space and let you yeah. Talk. Sometimes when you talk through your own stuff, you help problem solve your own stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Leslie, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate the work you're doing for educators and their mental health. It's incredible work, and I feel really privileged to have had you on the show and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Al. I was happy to be here. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. All right. You too. All right. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. 